0: I'm meeting in the ladies' room, I don't need this, I'll be back real Ha ha, to the ladies' room
1: Who are you talking
0: Use the ladies' room! Welcome to another episode of The Ladies' Room. As always, she is your host, Jane McManus. I am also your host, Julie Jacaro. We both write for Deadspin. Thanks for joining us. All right, Jane, um, you know, I'm really excited about our guest today. We'll keep people in suspense a little bit. Well, I guess they're not really in suspense because they're going to see it when they click on the... <laughs> uh, it. I don't it's know. Gonna if... be, it's going to say, Julie, the one with Chris I know. Morgan. And I'm doing this whole, like, song and dance about, ooh, it's a tease, (laughs) and then not realizing it's already going to be there. All right. It's not live radio, Julie. We're going to have Chris Mosier on. He's the first guy we've had on the show. We're ridiculously excited. Um, Before we get to Chris, though, we need to talk about uh, what happened this week (laughs) with the NWHL and Barstool. And I'm only laughing because it's, it's, I mean, first of all, I know there's a lot of people out there who will say, like, what's the problem with Barstool? Um, Google it. I don't know what else to tell you. I mean, there's too many things to enumerate. Um, I have been on the ends of numerous harassment campaigns because I criticized them. They went after my kid. They I mean they they are the worst. And the guys who run the site will say, "We don't tell people to harass anybody. We don't, you know, we're not part of this. We can't control what our readers do." Yet there is no other site that seems to have this problem with their readers. So, what happened this week was that um, I don't even I'm not even sure they, they, this whole thing blew up with them in the National Women's Hockey League um, over their CEO Erica Nardini, who I believe has they've been using as a shield for their sexism for a long time. Because whenever someone says you guys are sexist, they just go, "Well, we have a woman CEO and we have women working for us. How can we be sexist?" Um, that's my barstool guy voice, by the way. <laughs> it's a very. Yeah, we see where you're coming from. Yeah, and I mean they're gonna. I mean they're the guys that have tanked all our podcast ratings. They're because they're upset about what I've said about them in the past. Every time I launch a podcast, or I mean I can't wait to see the ratings for when my book comes out because they're gonna go tank all those. Right? I mean that's just what they do. You're not allowed to criticize them or they swarm you like you know just a mass of stoolies. I mean one time I I I locked my account. I went to sleep and I had like thirty seven hundred friend requests when I woke up. And they were all from dudes in New England with a Tom Brady jersey in their avatar. I mean, so this is something they've been doing for a long time. And I'm always sort of surprised that women in sports don't know about this. Like, right? I mean, we had like women from the US women's national soccer team going on their podcast, and we were all like, oh my God, what are you doing? Um, But this thing with the NWHL this week was really. Brutal, because what Erica Nardini did, but I don't even know how this whole thing started, but eventually Erica Nardini, who's the head of Barstool, puts together this video of people criticizing her. And by doing it, she's putting out the dog whistle because she included these people's names and tweets in her video. And it's like, here are the women I would like you to go harass. Now, she's going to deny that. But people in Barstool have been doing this for long enough that they know exactly what's going to happen. This this to me is, is pretty... It, what what actually
2: happened was that one of the players on the Riveters, um, Soroya Tinker, who's one of the few Black women in, in the league, uh, tweeted on Monday that the league um, shouldn't kind of look for a platform like Barstool, which was partnering uh, with the league, because it's a platform that accepts and promotes white supremacy. And because she said that, and she was, you know, she was very upfront about it. And I think a lot of people would would... The critics of Barstool will absolutely agree that's what they do. You can certainly look online for videos where the head of Barstool uses the N-word and things like that. So she has, you know, she has a basis for definitely saying this. Also, I think, you know, hockey is such a problem when it comes to historically disenfranchising Black players, both on the men's and the women's side, that when a player comes out and says this openly, um, you know, you have to, you have to, you have to listen to her. There's no way that we can now hear these things coming from people who are like, look, you know, yes, this is a a plat, Nordini supports women's hockey, but she also runs a platform where a lot of these other ideas are supported that ultimately undermine the bigger picture of what women's hockey is about. So you, you had then people who Based on what Tinker said, we're either against it or for it. And Barstool's Dave Portnory said that she should be in jail for that. Um, And, you know, that's also a problem saying that, uh, you know, a Black woman who speaks her mind about how she feels about this site should be in jail is also, I think, you know, rhetoric that unfortunately comes from the political realm these days.
0: Well, and he Um, is political. I mean, he is on Tucker Carlson. He's on Fox News. I mean, he this is what Dave Portnoy does. And this has been going on for years. I mean, since like 2010. So I have to, to me, like this is, um, I just find this whole thing
2: perplexing. I I love that there is an entity that um, wants to go against type by supporting women's hockey. And that to me is something that is valuable. However, um, at the same time, I, I do think we have to say, what are our values as a league? If you're if you are um, part of the the women's hockey league and say, what are our values as a league, and do they align with this entity? Is it just that women's sports are so desperate for any sort of platform and attention that we are willing to align ourselves with one that may ultimately undermine the greater values that we kind of hold dear and adhere to? So th- these are legitimate questions that are brought up and. Unfortunately, the, the bigger problem is, you know, I don't know if Tinker's come out and said anything yet, but there is, there is this kind of, you know, if someone comes out and speaks against Portnoy or, um, confronts them on any way, they retract and say, oh, you know, you just, you hate the woman at the top, Nardini, um, And, you know, and, and again, use her as though she's some sort of victim in this, as opposed to, you know, somebody who, who has agency and, um, and a platform and, you know, and it's just, to me, it's, I I do feel like, I feel like this is the ultimate politics in sports in some ways. And, and they do unleash an army against people who they feel are enemies and label as enemies. And it's, you know, it's, It's something I, well, I've never, I've never been subject to that, although this podcast might change that, but at this, I, I, so obviously you dread that as a woman working in sports, you don't want to tangle with that because you know that it will make your life unpleasant for a while. Um, Also, I'm not sure why we need that in sports necessarily. I mean, honestly, if people can have legitimate disagreements, I think we could probably discuss it in a way that doesn't involve
0: rhetoric, like lock her up. Um well I mean look here's the thing Jane I mean Barstool built an empire based on harassing women I mean you can and, and right now the racial component of this is getting a lot of um attention so I mean their their podcast with their black employees is called now it's about to get extremely real so I mean figure out the acronym for yourself I mean th- it, this is the kind of stuff that that they have always done and the reason that Chernin when they bought Barstool installed Erica Nardini and put a woman in charge is because of all the things that Barstool has said over the years, that if you're wearing a size six skinny jean, you deserve to get raped. That women who come out against Barstool are just fat, ugly dykes who can't get laid. I mean, all this kind of, I mean, it's like, it's everywhere. And, you know, I was one of the people that Real Sports reached out to when Soledad O'Brien did her interview with Dave Portnoy and Erica Nardini last year. And I was one of, I believe, 15 women they talked to who have, who basically said, I'm not putting my name behind this because well, yeah. I know what's going to happen. I mean, so it, the, the fact that the NWHL would want to have anything to do with Barstool in the first place is just blows my mind. I mean, this is, a, this is a site that has built its empire on misogyny and telling men that it's okay to talk about women this way and to talk to women this way. So I don't know, and I'm always, you know, Robert Silverman wrote this great piece about them in the Daily Beast last year. And mm-hmm. I, I just do not understand why corporations continue to want to partner with them. Um, you know, and he made the point that the people in the marketing department are all like young guys in their 20s who are like, hey, they've got, you know, however many million followers. See, that's um, the thing, that's it, the thing is, that, is that you may have a
2: great deal. And this is this has always been, I think, the fine line that that even places like ESPN have walked, which is. We have a lot of sports fans who are racist and misogynist and want to be able to not have that um, uh, thrown in their faces or contradicted or be an issue. So it's kind of always been like this, how do we walk this line where we promote women's sports, but we don't want to promote women's sports so much that we, you know, we get in the way of their enjoyment of right. their games. Um And I think that the thing that you have that Barcelona has going for it, obviously is it has this tremendous amount of popularity. and and you have, you know, misogynist like sports too. And so, for a, any kind of league that may really be uh, in need of of any kind of, you know, platform or broadcast, you know, juice or anything like that, I'm sure that it can be somewhat seductive to think, well, that's all in the past, and we're going to move forward with it now. And and I, I don't use this, Julie, in any way to justify any of it. I'm just trying to think what could the national women's hockey league have been thinking when it even thought this might be a good idea.
0: Yeah. And and I'll just, I mean, I love the fact that they were going to have a couple of barstool guys do the stretch at Wrigley field. And the fan revolt online was so, so huge that they had to like sort of downplay the barstool aspect of it. And they just interviewed the guy or they just introduced them by their first names and not like they're so-and-so from barstool, which was fantastic. Big win <laughs> for cub fans. Um, I've got a whole chapter on Barstool in my book, which you guys are going to hear about between now and like ev- every episode until the book yes. comes out on which March sixteenth. Which is on the way to my house. Is really. it? Yes. That's fantastic. I'm very um, excited about it. Yeah, I'm excited too. But I mean, I've got a full chapter on Barstool in there. Are some very high profile women speak out about them, and um, I fully expect to be doxxed, to have every you know to have everything happen all over again because that's what happens anytime you speak out against Barstool. So, um, yeah, I mean, if you don't know anything about barstool or if you think of them as the funny video guys on Twitter, um, I highly recommend Robert Silverman's article in the daily beast. Um, go look that up and read that. Okay. Enough with that. I don't, I don't want to give them any more oxygen. Um, we have breaking news that ties in perfectly with our guest for today. Jane, you brought this to my attention.
2: Yeah, I sure did. Um, because I knew, you know, when, when, when we were going to have Chris Mosier on today, I was obviously really excited and I was trying to think, OK, what are some of the ways that we can kind of reach the headlines on this? And there's a lot happening legislatively and a lot kind of in the weeds when it comes to trans rights in sports. But, boy, now we have, you know, somebody who has come out and said, you know, I, I am going I am, you know, I am trans and comes out as trans. Lashia Clarendon, uh, who's a member of the Liberty basketball player, WNBA. And, and she said this today. So um, she shared that she's undergone top surgery. And so now it's not just this esoteric, what are the laws? Um, it is, it, you, you can put a face to it.
0: Here yeah. is, yeah. And WNBA Players Association, always great and supportive and inclusive, put out a great statement supporting her. And like again, you know, the WNBA continues to be one of the leaders on not just race issues, but on issues of equity and inclusion across the board.
2: Right. And and Lashia is somebody who's been very outspoken um, and eloquent when it comes to the issues this summer uh, of race and Black Lives Matter. And I I think you know, in, in a lot of ways, these issues all go hand in hand. Right. They are about people and inclusion and acceptance. Um, and, you know, here's another person putting themselves on the line and saying, and, and, and it's as much as it's a letting people in to let, um, people know who she is. It's also, you know, in some ways it's a bit of a challenge, you know, accept me for who I am. I'm telling you who I am and I want to be accepted for that. And, you know, and, and so, so I think it's, you know, it's important to be able to embrace that. Um, and not, it's also, and not only
0: did she put out, she didn't just put out a tweet saying, Hey, you know, I, I came out as trans in December and I've had top surgery. I'm sorry. They actually included pictures of what the post-surgery, you know, scars and incisions look like, which I think is a really brave thing for them to do. Absolutely. Absolutely. And again, I think it's, you know, it's, it's, a, it's a way of saying, of putting, a
2: person in when we talk about these issues, which are now, you know, all over the country and, and, you know, Chris can, can help us out with this a lot, but, but, you know, all over the country, this conversation is happening. And we talk about it a lot when it comes to the people uh, at the very top in professional sports and who are competing at elite levels, but the actual experience that most trans people are going to have in sports is at the recreational or amateur or high school level. And that's going to be where they're looking for inclusion. And and so I think it's, you know, when you have somebody like LaShia come out and be so upfront about who they are and what they're doing, I think it also then means, and if you can read this and accept this with me, there are hundreds of young trans boys and girls out there who are also looking for that same reaction of love and acceptance that so many people are gonna give LaShia. 100%, 100%.
0: So Jane and I have sort of talked about this issue um, several times since the show started. We've talked about the various bills that are out there um, trying to exclude trans girls from sports. We talked with Martina about this and obviously she and I and Jane disagree on this and I did my best to push back, but obviously I am not an expert in this area. Um, And we wanted to do um, a, a more what's the word I'm looking for, a smarter show about these issues than we've been able to do so far. So we are thrilled to welcome in uh, today's guest. Chris Mosier is a trans activist and athlete. In 2015, he earned a spot on Team USA's 2016 World Championship. Okay, I've had a hard time with this word, duathlon. Am I saying that right? Duathlon? team, um, in, which is biking and running, so triathlon without the swimming. Um, okay. He's Chicago's own. He is the first guy on the pod. Chris, it's so great to have you on the show. How are you doing?
1: Hey, great. Thank you so much for having me.
0: We're so thrilled that you were able to be here, and it was kind of fortuitous that the Lashia Clarendon having top surgery news broke today, and, and she came out and was very open they... and honest. How did you feel about that?
1: Uh, they came out and uh, talked about their surgery. Yeah. Um, Yeah. Super pumped for, for lay. I'm very happy and also thrilled with the support that WNBA PA put out, um, which you probably talked about. Uh, I think it's a big moment. Visibility is a powerful tool for social change. And I think having a player in a women's professional league talk about gender expansiveness is, is really going to make people grapple with their ideas about gender and particularly about the way that we're treating trans and non-binary people in sports right now. And it's just a critical moment. So I'm really, really thrilled with you know, advocacy and they're coming out and talking about this.
2: Chris, let me ask you obviously are someone at a high level who's, who's made this um, public. So has uh, Lacia and are there are there many others? because I just I, I wonder, you know, it's you certainly men's professional sports don't even have a player who's come out as gay. Um, and so there's been a lot, I think you know sports are some place where certainly we've talked about this in the past where the most the first question you get asked when you want to play a sport is, are you a boy or are you a girl? And that's mm-hmm. how you are then put into a team one or the other, as though they are two separate things, when honestly, like I think most people experience play in a co-ed way, you know, in neighborhoods or teams growing up. But then, but then we're kind of told that if you really want to play, you have to pick a side. And I just wanted to know, like, at the top level, how are there, are there more stories of people who wrestle with decisions and are unable to make them, but feel so constrained by kind of the way we think about gender and sports in our country?
1: Oh, definitely. You know, my experience was that, you know, I'm a trans man. I was assigned female at birth, grew up playing girls and women's sports. And transitioned after college. And so my whole experience was, you know, in youth sports and and seeing that difference between the way that I was treated versus the way that my brother was treated when we were kids. I and mean, to your point, you know, when kids are kids, they are just playing with everybody in the neighborhood, but there comes a certain time in which sport becomes incredibly gendered. And it is men's and women's sports, boys and girls sports, and there's not room in between but what we've seen over time, obviously, is that uh, th- there is an expansive number of genders. Their gender is a, uh, you know, not a binary system. And we have to open up space for everybody to be in sports. Um, this system that we have right now isn't quite cutting it. It's not fully inclusive for all people as people become more comfortable, confident talking about their identity. And you know, there are a lot of barriers in place for people like me. Um and particularly not even for people like me for and I'm talking as a as a trans man and specifically as a white trans man, you know the, the what we're seeing is that any trans woman or trans girl who wants to play girls and women's sports is instantly discriminated against harassed given a hard time, whereas myself as a trans man you know i've I've faced certainly some discrimination, but not nearly to that level so I think there's a lot at play here. There are systems in place that prevent trans athletes from coming out. There's always, you know, that focus on men's sports and the big four men's sports of looking for that gay player. But we're, we're seeing in other areas of sport, a lot more inclusion for gay, lesbian, bisexual athletes. And we're at this really critical moment right now where we have to be talking about inclusion of gender and, you know, in trans and non-binary people specifically.
0: Chris, we've, so we've got all these bills out there floating around right now. I know there's, there's, there's twin bills in Montana and Idaho. There's one in Iowa. Uh, there's a bill in Florida now, which is really, I mean, they're all egregious, but the one in Florida, I think is, is, is pretty terrible, or at least the way the guy who introduced it talked about it was pretty terrible. You know, the question Jane and I keep asking about this is, is this really a huge problem? I, I mean, I, I, it just seems like when we think of all the issues affecting trans people, um, especially trans women. And we think about, you know, we, how often we hear that a trans woman's been murdered, um, that this just isn't a huge problem in society right now. And it seems like the focus on excluding trans girls from sports is, is just a, a, like a, a hammer in search of a nail.
1: That's a great way to put it. It is all of these bills are trying to solve a problem that simply does not exist and it's comical but the way that the messaging has come out there's really been a very strong concerted effort by anti trans folks who are targeting specifically trans women to coordinate messaging to put out just you know a massive information or or and I wouldn't wouldn't say facts, it's definitely not facts. It's it's their crafted narrative around this of of trying to achieve exclusion, as opposed to looking for ways to include trans athletes. And specifically, they're packaging these under bills that say save women's sports. But inherent within any of these bills in the text, there's absolutely no way to save women's sports within it. It is absolutely trying to exclude Certain people from being able to play sport. This is not the way that it's typically been. I have been tracking policies since 2013 at the state level and then all the way up through the IOC, national governing bodies, and so on. Trans inclusive policies at various levels of play and sport on my website, transathlete.com. You know, at the high school level, it's been a patchwork of policies. And I would say that's pretty accurate across the board, depending on the level of play, even within a sport, one specific sport. It can be a variety of policies depending on where you're at and what level you're at. But what we're seeing right now is that we've moved away in the last year from national or, sorry, from state governing bodies. So, a high school athletic association, for example, making a policy to having lawmakers be deeply invested in excluding trans people from sport. But what this is, is a gateway policy. This is a gateway bill to try to exclude trans people from other areas of public life. And starting in sport, which, you know, the way the messaging has come out has been really, um, has gotten people really activated about it. Even if people are not athletes, they don't have kids in high school sports, people feel very, very strongly about this issue. And the truth is, many people don't know a trans person in real life in the United States that over half of the country has never interacted or so they believe with a trans person in real life. So what they're hearing from folks who are anti-trans can make a really compelling argument, but there's no receipts to back that up. So when you ask, is this a problem? Let's take Montana, for example. They had two anti-trans bills. One was about sports. One was about healthcare. Fortunately, the healthcare one, which would would have made it a crime to give gender-affirming, life-saving care to trans kids, uh, that one is off the table now, but for the sports bill, the Montana State High School Athletic Association person who has worked there for over twenty years said this has never been a problem for them. They have no one on their radar that this has ever been an issue. So it's really like you said, looking for a problem where this is it's it's really there are such a small number of us out there that it's amazing that in this time, you know, specifically in Covid, our country is really, really hurting right now. That this would be what lawmakers want to narrow in on,
2: and that I think is why Clarendon saying what they said today is so important, because here you now have an actual person, and they're not scary, they're not strange, they're just a person who wants to play sports, and um, and so you know I think it's easier when you are able to kind of point to someone and say, well, you know, this is really isn't a problem here. Um, you have the support of the WNBA Players Association. You have the, the support of their teammates and, um, and everything else and a lot of fans as well. So uh, that's important. The, the, you're right, though, on the framing of this. It's always struck me as really paternalistic the way that it's framed. Like women need to be protected. Cis mm-hmm. women need to be protected. Um, and also it goes against, I think, the experience that most people have of play when you play co-ed softball or a co-ed basketball game. I think, you know, and particularly when I was growing up, and I'm about to be 50, but when I was growing up, you played co-ed games in your neighborhood just informally as well. So this, and and I kind of believe, honestly, that that's kind of, kind of the way to go, to look at it as though sports should be inclusive. And it's, you know, there are women who are stronger than certain men. There are, you know, Men who are better at certain quote unquote women's games. I so to me, this idea that we that that we have gendered sports is really furthering the idea of gender in a way that it, it that is becomes less useful for us as people who just want to play and feel included and have that sense of community. Um, which I think gets completely lost in a lot of these bills, which I I agree with you very much. They are they are a way of trying to say, ah. We've found the one area where this could possibly make it unfair for somebody else. And so we're going to use that as a wedge to widen um, the legislation against this particular class of person. And it just must be incredibly frustrating when all you want to do is go out and play a game with people who also want to go out and play a game. Last week, we were discussing a terrific story written by Brittany De La Cretas, and they wrote that the experience of transitioning from a young boy's point of view. And I think so often the storytelling that's done around trans sports is about the the cis women who are affected, um, not so much about the from the point of view of an actual trans person and what that is about, but this was from the point of view of a trans boy and how playing for his sports, his, his high school team had had uh, such an impact on his ability to feel connected within the school, to feel connected to his peers, to feel accepted, um, and to feel that kind of, you know, the energy that you get from playing on a boys team. And I just wondered, and you transitioned a little bit later, but that experience of um, transitioning and playing, was that, how was that for you?
1: Yeah, I would say it's probably not even uh, transitioning and playing on a boys team. That is the you know, impactful experience. It's it's being able to be who you truly are and be recognized as such in in an area that is incredibly gendered. And also, uh, you know, that it, being around your peers, that's really important. When I was a kid, obviously, you know, I didn't have the word transgender on my radar even. So I was playing girls and women's sports and I didn't have a strong identity as a girl or a woman, but I didn't have other options or terminology to sort of talk about myself. But what I found even without identifying as trans, just feeling like I was me and, and I wasn't like my peers, that sports became that place where I felt the most like myself. Mm-hmm. I felt like I could fully show up as myself. I felt like I was loved and embraced and accepted because of the work that I put in and how I was a great teammate and leader and communicator. And you know, we were all working towards the same goal. And there's something really, really powerful about that and I I can't even imagine my experience as a young person if I would have been able to fully show up as the person I am today and have that experience as a young person. You know, all that said, like I didn't know I was trans. I'm very grateful for the experiences that I had as a young girl in girls' sports. But i think that you know we are drawn to the sport because it is a place where we can ex- express ourselves there's so many positive you know physical mental social psychological benefits that go along with playing sports for everyone for trans people and for cis people and trans kids just want to play play sports like everyone else like they just want to do it because it's fun and because they can move their body and connect to people and i think that that story was really powerful because as you mentioned what we are usually talking about when we're talking about trans inclusion in sport is about keeping trans girls out of sport. And trans boys and trans men are largely not included in both policymaking or the conversations about inclusion in sport for for a variety of reasons, but it was really great to get that additional perspective and, and add a little bit more humanity to this conversation.
0: Yeah, and Chris, uh, not to take the humanity out of it, but can you speak a little bit to the science um, behind? I mean, I don't even I don't know if this is even valid science. I know that when Martina Navratilova was on, she talked about the fact that you know it depends if you transition before puberty or after puberty, and if you transition after you've gone through puberty as a male, then you have an advantage. I don't know what the pushback is. Um, I mean, on the, on the scientific side, my response was just like, I don't really care. There's like way bigger issues affecting. I mean, I was an athlete. We were all athletes. I mean, there's always someone bigger than you, stronger than you, or like I was a gymnast, so smaller than you and lighter than you. And, <laughs> and you know, and I look at someone like like Michael Phelps, who has all these physical advantages in his size and his wingspan in in the size of his feet um, over other athletes. So I guess I don't understand really why this is the, the the scientific thing that we're focused on.
1: Yeah. I mean, here's the thing, right? If the science was clear, we wouldn't be having this conversation, period. If there was clear science out there that actually pointed to something in one direction or another, this conversation would be over. We would have the facts, we would have the data, we'd have the studies. But what, what folks on the anti-trans side have done a good job of is getting in front of the media messaging to talk about these sort of hypothetical situations, this theorizing or stating things blanketly as fact, where they lack the receipts to back that up, you know, it was mentioned. Like, I love that idea that that you know sometimes there are people smaller than you, and that's actually an advantage in a sport, right? We often don't think about that because what we often hear is that um, you know that athletes are going to be bigger, faster, and stronger, and that's why they shouldn't compete. Uh, that trans athletes will be, and specifically trans women, and in the as was mentioned at the top of this, like everybody's body is different. Cis women, just like trans women are different heights, different weights, different athletic abilities. And so I think it becomes incredibly problematic to make these sweeping broad generalizations about someone assigned male at birth or someone assigned female at birth, you know, because we don't have the studies to back that up. Even the data that's coming out of organizations like the IOC that they're using compares testosterone from from saliva versus testosterone from blood. It t- takes studies from non athletes and tries to apply them to athletes or in, you know, some of the worst cases is taking the very best top of the top of the most elite athletes and care and comparing them and then trying to apply that to high schoolers in, in sport. So like, you know, your, your Michael Phelps, uh, information, versus Katie Ledecky is not going to be applicable to your standard 15-year-old in whatever state in the country who's just trying to play with friends. And so it's incredibly problematic to try to you know pick data from these studies uh, because you can manipulate that however you want. I think a, a good resource for folks who want to dive into this is the book, Testosterone, and Unauthorized Biography. Hmm. And there is an incredible ch- chapter on athletics in it, but it also covers the way that this conversation around testosterone and performance and uh, masculinity has been shaped over time. And it I just found it to be a really powerful look framing all of this up. And it, it very clearly relates to all of these topics.
2: That is okay. So uh, that, I really relate to that because as Julie knows, and as I bring up on every podcast, I played roller derby for seven years. And, roller derby is a sport where you can be big you can be small you can be wide you can be narrow and there's a place on the team for you where you will really fit in and be able to perform you know to to the best of your athletic ability um and it also is a sport that had in in 2010 when i was a member of women's flat track derby association put in their first trans skater policy and Mm. it was imperfect and you know the league did a lot of listening to players after that and it has evolved over the years but that is where I first played against trans women it on you know in a competitive um in in a competitive arena and it was absolutely fine (laughs) there was nothing terrible great whatever it was like playing against anyone else and Mm -hmm. this to me is the experience and like what you're talking about in terms of um you know most i understand where martina navratilova is coming from in this area because she was the best of the best and every single margin that you know everything that she did would have an effect on performance and she measured that because she wanted to be the very best in the world so i think it's important to recognize that that is her perspective on a lot of this but for most of us our experience is going to be on a basketball court with other 15 year olds with our friends you know, in a, in a in a in a holiday outdoor football game, you know, in the in a less in a in a setting where that margin is not the important thing, where the play is the important thing, and so we set a policy. If you set a policy for that one situation where it might matter, you are excluding your opportunity to learn about people and to include people and to have that experience of play with people in a way that I think is much more impactful and is 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 the is is where you're going to find the great majority of of these opportunities to play anyway not at that at that very elite level in an olympic match
1: yeah thank you so much for sharing that bit of your experience too and i think that's really what's missing from like from the public conversation is we need more of those stories because we know that your story of of playing with trans people and having it be uh non-monumental, nothing to write home about, <laughs> that's right. happening across the country. Trans people aren't just new. We didn't just pop up in the last two years and start playing sports. Trans people have been playing sports for a very long time with their peers in the gender with which they identify without problem. And, you know, it's just when media gets a hold of these stories of the one or two athletes who have, a, have a, the, the race of their life or, you know, do well. Uh, And and in in a lot of cases, it's not even about that. It's even for trans women just trying to participate now at this point. You know, but for those five athletes that people could name because they've become the uh, you know, people that internationally anti-trans activists have been using as visual representation of Mm. you know, trying to create this problem, there are hundreds of people who have been playing with their peers. And it hasn't been an issue. There have been states around the country that have had very inclusive policies and you know high schoolers have been playing on their teams and it and it, no one is no one is <laughs> no one is hurt no one is crying about it they're having that same sort of experience that they're that they're just playing with other people and i think that's what's really missing is those stories of the folks who have had those experiences like you that's like wait why is this a problem i'm not yeah, understanding exactly.
0: Right. Paris, um, yeah, we're going to ask you one last two part question and then we'll let you go. Um, and we really appreciate your time. Um, you know, first of all, do you have hope going forward? Um, do you feel like you have an ally in the Biden administration? I guess is the first question. Um, and the second question is, you know, at the top of the show, I uh, misgendered Laisha Clarendon and you corrected me. And I think that, you know, whenever we talk about writing about these issues at Deadspin, I know that there are people who are writing about them anywhere. People who say, you know, I'm not really comfortable. I don't know that much about it. I'm afraid I'm going to make a mistake and, and people are going to be upset with me. Or I'm going to offend somebody. It, when you misgender someone by accident or you, um, you know, misspeak or, or, you know, anything along those lines, what's the best way for cis people who, who want to be good allies to handle that?
1: Yeah, those are great questions. So yeah, first question, I do feel like I have much more of an ally in the Biden administration. And actually, I'm just going to put this out there. If anybody is listening from Washington or uh, has a connection, I would love to work with that administration in some capacity. So either with the administration, in the administration, I think that'd be a great way for me to uh, you know, make sure that there's better inclusion, not just in sports, but uh, for all trans people in all areas of life. So I'm manifesting that. I'm going to use this platform to do that. I'm
0: sure Joe uh, Biden is listening. It's not like, he hit me up.
1: <laughs> uh, or maybe an aide, but hit me up. Um, and then, you know, what's the best way. So, you know, I, I actually was thinking about this, uh, when we are a little cut off, but um, in a moment after that of being like, okay, this is a recorded podcast, and you could very easily go back and re-record that, right? Um, and I don't know that that's actually what you're going to do. You can keep that in, or actually, I'll just let you answer that right now.
0: Oh, we'll we're keep it in, in now. Mean, yeah, <laughs> yeah, yeah. Okay. No, I mean, okay, I, mean so... I think it's good to show that you make a mistake, you know, and yeah. that these are we're all trying to unlearn a lot of things and learn new things. So,
1: right. oh, this is so true. This is so good. So this is one thing, right? As an ally, what can you do? You can unpack your stuff, right? Um, So first, the first thing before we even make a mistake or, you know, and, and here's the thing, right? you don't know what you don't know. Mm -hmm. So like, I, I am all about making every every situation an educational experience. And that is a bit of a burden for trans people to take on. It's not the the responsibility of trans or non-binary people to be Google for everybody, but for sure. I've made it my mission to do that. Um, and I and I, you know, want that to happen. So I think in this moment, first recognizing that you don't know what you don't know. And then if you if you make a mistake and somebody calls it to your attention, then you know you can just say thank you and then make that correction and move on. So for me as a trans person, it was so difficult and particularly in the early parts of my transition with specifically the folks who knew me for a very long time to make that pronoun change from she to he and when a mistake would happen it obviously hurt it was it was hurtful but what made it even worse would, would be when people would fumble and make a big deal out of it and the last thing i wanted was somebody to call more attention to it to make it a, oh i uh, um you know and, and kind of stammer around it and and apologize and be embarrassed and then feel like they um, you know, to, to personalize it, like they were bad and that they, they did harm. I mean, it can just cycle out of control, which leaves the trans or non-binary person standing there. Like you actually were offensive to me and now I'm consoling you for making a right. mistake. It's a so little weird. <laughs> right. Right. Um, so just, you know, saying like, so if you say the wrong pronoun, then restate and you recognize that, or somebody calls you on it. Thank you. And then restating it using the appropriate pronoun, you know, in some cases that might mean if you are talking with somebody to, to make a personal apology. Like, Hey, so sorry. I messed that up. Um, I'm committed to, to getting it right. I'm I'm sorry. You know, that can go a long way too, if you have a relationship with that person, but I think the big thing is correcting it and then working hard to, to commit that to memory to, to getting it right.
2: So funny because in preparation for this podcast, I had a discussion with my 16 year old daughter who is way more aware and on top of these things. And in the process of our conversation, and, and I went to high school back in the ni- late 1980s in Lincoln, Nebraska, where there were two trans people who went to my school who were in my friend group. And, you know, so I considered myself to be quite forward thinking, um, having been exposed to that and and, you know, part of that. Um, way back then. But there's so much that I need to learn. And my daughter corrected me on at least two things that I said, (laughs) which helped me prepare for this conversation. But I think Mm -hmm. that, you know, the good news is, um, is I think that the next generation is going to be so much more, uh, it's just going to be part of the water. You know, it's just, it's Mm -hmm. not even going to be something they think about in the way that it might be awkward for people of my generation or, you know. um, All right you know, people after me, but I think, you know, the the people born now and, and coming into the discussion of gen- gender and identity now, are it's just going to be so much par- more a part of who they are and how they discuss things and much less
1: awkward. Yes and no. We have to be careful not to get complacent with that idea that just because kids are popping out in 2021, that they will automatically be woke to this information because we have to remember that there are parents and grandparents out there. There are, um, you know, Faith leaders and institutions that aren't as progressive as our as as your sixteen year old <laughs> as as our as our young people are, and I think you know I absolutely think you're right in terms of for the young people. This is not an issue. Like coming out to young people for me was like such a relief. It was so great to to have the young cousins be like, "All right, cool, can we go play video games now?" <laughs> <laughs> like, I'm like, like you know, whereas it's like a months long conversation with the adults in the family. So you know with that they are more progressive many of them but we still see that there's you know parental influence that there is coaches and athletic directors and you know and and leaders in sport that aren't being as accepting and and every young person gets those messages and and they also get the anti trans messages that the media is promoting about stories and and so I think that's really important to remember we can't become complacent and just think the next generation will have it figured out and we can't re- you know, alleviate our own responsibility in helping to make a difference in this area by by doing research, by, you know, elevating voices, by really digging into this information and figuring out where we stand. And at the end of the day, we have to remember this is about people, right? We have to center the humanity of people. And particularly when we're talking about, you know, these state policies, we're talking about young people. No 14-year-old should have to show what's in their pants in order to play sports. Mm -hmm. But that's what will happen in Iowa for any young girl who's questioned on her gender, if this bill goes through, you know, it shouldn't be deemed child abuse to give a kid, a trans kid, gender affirming, life-saving care, the care that they need, that every major medical association says is what is the right thing to do. That shouldn't be considered child abuse. The doctor shouldn't be put in jail for doing their job, but that's what will happen if some of these bills go through. So we really have to remember we're talking about people. And even if like, you know, folks didn't have the experience that you had, which kind of blows my mind to have two trans folks in your school in Nebraska at that time. You know, like even if you don't know a trans person, actually you might know a trans person and just not know it, we're we are people and we have to center that humanity first.
0: Chris Mosier, uh, we're so grateful for your time and for your expertise and your thoughtfulness today. Give Chris a follow over on Twitter at the Chris Mosier. And we're really excited to see what you do next, Chris. Hopefully uh, Joe Biden is listening as he always does. (laughs) Um, And and we can get you to Washington and working with some people to sort of elevate your work.
1: I appreciate it, transathlete.com for anybody who wants more information about these bills. And if you're interested in taking action against any of these anti-trans sports bills, uh, com slash take dash action, or follow me on Instagram at the Chris Mosier. Thank you both so much.
0: Terrific. Thank you, Chris. Take care. Jane, um, you know, Chris is great. I'm so grateful that we were able to get his time and expertise. Um, but I think it was really interesting, this conversation, you know, like, are you guys going to cut that part out where I misgendered laisha Clarendon and you know, I, I guess that that it's sort of you know, when you do a podcast, you want it to be professional and you want to sound like you're a professional. And I mean, God, I've said so many dumb things over Twitter that over the past, I mean, I've been on Twitter for what <laughs> 10 years at this point, 12 years. God knows all the stupid things I said in 2008, 2009 that now I'm just mortified by. Um, but I think it's important to what for people that are in, you know, positions, invisible positions in sports to be like, hey, I screwed up. And if, if someone else can learn from my screw up, then I'm more than happy to do that.
2: There's so many um, different ways in which we're kind of expected to be like f- fully f- aggressively, fully formed the first moment that we have a platform. And, you know, and Jamel Hill has talked about this uh, quite a bit that, you know, being able to say that you're sorry and you got something wrong. I mean, there was a conversation last week um, about Jen Sturger and she's obviously, you know, somebody who was sent uh, pictures of Brett Favre's penis in in 2010 when she was uh, a game day host for the Jets. Mm -hmm. And, you know, that kind of, that came up as part of this larger conversation, but she was not treated well by a lot of members of the media. When that initially happened, she was disbelieved, you know, she was, said things were said about her that weren't true she was discarded she was you know not taken seriously um and that was very painful for her and i think there've been a number of people both you know reporters men and women who have approached her now and in recent years to say you know what i got that wrong and i think it's the same um you know as we as we get older as we see these things happen. i mean i think a lot of people back in 2010 didn't even necessarily realize how misogynistic that conversation was around those pictures being sent to her. And, you know, as we get older, we kind of come to see more information and we see things in a different light. And, you know, I, I wish I would have come out fully baked, you know, when I emerged from J school, but that's not what happened. It's a learning process. And it's the same. And I think that's a, that is certainly a big part of what's happening now with gender and the way we think about gender in our culture and the way that we're using different words and we're using different kinds of language and whether or not the word, you know, Latinx should be something that's used or if that's something that, because you know, that people are from Latin American countries wouldn't use, so therefore we shouldn't use. I mean, all of these conversations that are taking place now, we don't necessarily know what, what emerging consensus there will be. Um, and so we do our best, you know, yeah, we and do I our think, best to talk about these
0: things with some sensitivity. Yeah. And I think, you know, every day you try to do better than what you did the day before. Um, I, you know, was sitting here, I was prepping for the show. I was making sure I had everyone's pronouns right. And I still screwed it up. And it's, you know, it's, it's, it's one of those things that I'm glad Chris said this though, that, you know, if you make a mistake, just apologize and move on. And I know that the, the going over and apologizing profusely and repeatedly is, you know, because you feel like just saying it, just moving on from it isn't enough. And you need to let them know that you really do want to be an ally and you're really, really, truly, deeply sorry, but that's not their problem. That's your problem. Right. And you've got to learn to deal with that.
2: We we want to let people know that we are, we're thinking deeply about this, even if we screwed up. So let me prove to you how deeply I think and how very much I care about this issue by telling you over and over again. I, I mean, I think, you know, I, I, that's something I've no longer am at a point where somehow conceding that I've done something incorrectly or I've used a, a word that is improper or pronounced somebody's name wrong is a, is a flaw in my personal character such that I can't own up to it and move on. Right. I think we just have to be able to get to a point where we can say, you know what, I am wiser now than I was 10 minutes ago. And so forward.
0: (laughs) Right. And I mean, and one of the things, you know, on that that drives me crazy about harassment on Twitter is that people dig up tweets from 10 years ago when things were very different and want to use that now to show that you're a hypocrite instead of showing that this is that you have grown and evolved as a person and I know Jamal has talked about that with like some of some of her tweets that like yeah like I and whenever someone brings it up she handles it so beautifully because she's like oh thank you for the chance to address this again yeah right and I mean um yeah I mean I I just think all we can do is try to do better the next day but you also have to put the work in you know it's not enough just to want to be better you have to you know if you're going to have someone on who is a trans person, make sure that you know what you're talking about to some extent. Make sure that you have their pronouns right. Make sure you know all that kind of stuff. Um, yeah, it's really not hard. It's just thing. about being kind. It costs nothing to be kind. It costs so little from yourself. You know, it's it, Whenever I hear people talk about, oh, the PC police or whatever, it's just about being a, a kind, good person and trying to make other people feel comfortable. I, I want to actually bring up that we are
2: talking about Jamel Hill and it's because what she apologized for was actually saying something about a trans person via tweet a number of years ago, somebody brought up and she said, actually, I don't need to apologize to you about this. I need to apologize to the people in that community that I may have hurt with my insensitivity and my lack of understanding about who they are and what they've been through. And I just thought, and that's why the apology was so effective. It wasn't like, oh yeah, you got me. I'm sorry for that. No, it was an actual understanding that the people that she, you know, that, that whatever, whoever the Yahoo was that brought up that, you know, gotcha, that wasn't, that wasn't the problem. The problem was that she didn't understand what she was saying and who it hurt. Yeah,
0: and you know, the thing that makes it so disingenuous is that the people that love to bring these up and point them out to you are the people who use these terms still regularly. (laughs) So they've evolved not at all. Yes. Yeah.
2: So I think we need to talk about our week of viewing as okay. a regular part of the pod. And what, what we've been watching, what I've been watching with, uh, it's is basically period dramas. And yes. um, we watched a little bit of, you know, we watched the 2005 uh, Pride and Prejudice with Keira Knightley. Mm-hmm. Um, and, but what we really then started watching was Bridgerton by. Uh, okay. yes, Rhymes,
1: right?
2: Yeah, that's right. Yeah. And, and, you know, it's like, it's, Uh, It's kind of like the bachelor meets Jane Austen. It feels (laughs) like a little bit like we're almost hate watching at this point, but kind of, you know what I mean? Like it's, it's interesting. The the costumes are completely inauthentic, but they're still compelling. The, you know, the characters are all good looking, which is fantastic. I love the way that it kind of plays with the idea of race. In you know the 1800s in in England and how that would have been um, how that would have worked out so that's interesting, Um, but yeah it's it's a it's a bit of a mixed bag it's definitely pandemic viewing I think so you know I I, but maybe against my
0: better interest I love a good period drama I keep looking at the pictures of Bridgerton online and on Twitter and just being like I don't know. (laughs) just looks crazy. (laughs) Every scene is like so full of color and like so over the top and the people are so ridiculously good looking. And I'm just like, I don't know. (laughs) Exactly. I think you're,
2: you're right onto it. It's just, you you know, there's going to be a moment, Julie, when you feel weak and you don't know what else to watch. And you're going to pull that up.
0: Oh, for sure. It's coming. I know it's coming. (laughs) It's just, it looks like an Easter egg. It's just ridiculous. (laughs) It is.
2: And not only that, like the plot has been done in like a thousand different other, you know, pieces of entertainment. And so you can kind of, you can, it's all telegraphed. You know exactly what's coming.
0: There are no surprises, Um, but
2: it's still, it's still kind of
0: amusing. Yeah. I'm definitely, I'm definitely intrigued by it. I start, I know I'm way behind. I started the Queen's Gambit last night, watched the first two episodes. Uh, It was really terrific. Have you seen the Queen's Gambit?
2: So no, because we haven't been able to set the Netflix up on the TV. So I don't like watching it on the small screen. And the only reason, but then my daughter volunteered to pull up the Netflix on her small screen, which is slightly larger. And so we're watching it that way. But Queen's Gambit is on my list as soon as I can figure out technologically. The
0: the first two episodes were really terrific. I really enjoyed it. Um, And then last night I stayed up to watch The Dissident, which is a documentary about the life and murder of journalist Jamal Khashoggi from The Washington Post. Um, It is uh, it is powerful. It I just kind of I finished it at like two in the morning and I just kind of sat on the bed and, like, stared for, like, 15 minutes just trying to process it. The mm-hmm. role of the United States in it, Jared Kushner, Donald Trump, the way that uh, Trump just discarded it and basically said he believed Mohammed bin Salam, who is the crown prince or whatever of Saudi Arabia, mm-hmm. um, it, it is it is just extremely upsetting. And I was just raging today against Anthony Scaramucci because— He has become the darling of the left because he says stuff about Trump. And so he's always on MSNBC and he's always on CNN. And this is a guy who still is, has like a very friendly relationship with Mohammed bin Salam who had a reporter murdered. And there is no question about it. And it's even possible that he watched the murder via TV, like from, you know, that he was like on a zoom call watching the murder. Um, They go into graphic detail, what happened to his body. His, his fiance is in it. She's absolutely heartbreaking. The whole thing is just enraging, but I can't recommend it enough. It's streaming on prime right now. It's like 20 bucks. It's completely worth it. Well, that's a good recommendation. It sounds like it's something also that you have to be in a
2: frame of mind where you can, I find things like that, obviously, really upsetting. Um, yeah. It sounds like, you know, your experience with that is, so I kind of have to be in a place where, you know, I feel a little bit of, um, a res- I feel a reservoir of yeah. uh, patience and uh, focus in order to be able to watch something like that.
0: Yeah, and it's also got a lot of kind of homeland stuff in it because it it shows you how the Saudi Arabians take, the government takes over um, social media. I mean, they basically do the homeland thing where they have a room full of like 500 people and they're all running 20 accounts And, you know, I mean, and and so there's that aspect to it, too. Like, how do they hack people's phones? Like, they hack Jeff Jeff Bezos's phone. Um, That's how all the stuff about him having an affair came out. I mean, the whole thing is, it is one of those stories that, I mean, you know, it's a cliche, but if you submitted this to Hollywood, they would say, this is completely unbelievable. And they would say, you know, you go back and write me something more realistic. Um, I, I really, really recommend it. And I um, you know, got asked to to take part in the Committee to Protect Journalists, um, this little video they did at the top of their award show, and I was, I was honored to be asked, and yeah. plus, it was, like, Meryl Streep was, like, in it, and, like, so I, was I just kept being, like, yeah, I have to go do this award show with Meryl Streep, so, um, you and Meryl Streep were yes, in a picture. It's basically me and Meryl Streep, um, <laughs> But like Rosamund Pike's in like the video that I'm in and like Ali Velshi and stuff. So I was like super stoked by it. But I've started to get really more into like studying like what's happening to journalists around the world. And so this was something that sort of hit right in my wheelhouse. And um, it's upsetting, but I think ultimately very important.
2: And now we've come full circle because Rosamund Pike was also in the 2005 version of Pride and Prejudice. Ah,
0: amazing.
2: Like put a bow on top of the pod. It's not going to get any more more full circle than that.
0: It's really not. We should probably leave it there. But before we go, I just want to say, rest in peace, John Chaney, legendary coach at Temple, who died today at age eighty nine. And Temple knocked us out of the tournaments a couple times um, when I was in college. We always hated facing them. It was always hilarious to watch him and Bobby Knight going back and forth on the <laughs> sidelines. Um, so rest in peace, John. He was a good one. Yeah, absolutely. It's been a
2: tough year uh, for losing people with. Um, you know, a
0: number of different. Yeah. Sports. And we're only like 29 days into it. Yeah. 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 Super. All right. Well, thanks for listening to another episode of the ladies room. We hope you guys will give us a follow on social media at Jane sports and at Julie DeCaro. If you like the pod, please go uh, subscribe and give us a good rating over on Apple podcasts. And I know we're on audible now too, which I just found out like yesterday. Cause someone said I was the first person to, to rate you guys on audible. And I was like, really? No, we're That's on awful. audible. We're on Audible. Oh, great. That's great. Yeah. And shout out to all our NPR One listeners. Um, yes. That, yeah. Like we're getting a huge percentage of our listeners from NPR One. So that is that is super cool. Um, we will see you guys next week here on The Ladies Room.